When it comes to what you choose to put in your body, the food you eat, the supplements you might or might not take, who do you trust? Hello and welcome to a very special edition of The Swim Brief. I've been teasing this one for, gosh, it seems like a few months at this point, and now finally uh, a ways into 2024, it's here. My name is Chris DeSantis, and on this podcast, The Swim Brief, I discuss things that come up in my own coaching and discussions I have with other coaches. Let me give a little bit more background than usual uh, for this podcast, and I'm likely this is just the first of multiple parts um, because I have a lot of material to work through. This was a podcast that... um, It wasn't obvious from the intro that I have spent a few months kicking around um, and sort of looking at from a lot of different angles. About a year back, when I dove back into putting all my energy into Chris DeSantis coaching, that was January 2023, I very grudgingly re-engaged with social media. And I'll, I'll probably have a podcast later Um coming this year about some of the ways that I I think about social media after that. Um, But I, I, I guess I should add at this point that um, I have a history of mental health challenges and navigating social media is a bit fraught in that context in that, like, I know that there are um, inherent uh, dangers to your mental health being too engaged on social media. I mean, there's a lot of things that are potentially dangerous to do, um, depending on your situation. But at the same time, <clears throat> I've been podcasting in the swimming world and um, this podcast is by far the most listened to or engaged thing that I produce on any platform. Um, there are, you know, there are hundreds of people that follow me on, uh, Instagram, Facebook, a zombie website. Apparently I have a thousand and a half, uh, one and a half thousand followers. Um, I, I, I don't even want to know how many of those people are actually doing anything there. Um, but the podcast gets somewhere between five, 6,000 downloads um, in any given month. And um, I bring that up because uh, I think I have a pretty good audience. I also think that I don't have the biggest audience uh, in the sport of swimming, okay? Um, and I, I have a guess as to who has the most popular podcast in the sport of swimming, and that is Inside with Brett Hawk. I don't think that uh, a lot of people would disagree with me on that. Um, and although I admit to consuming his content mainly through social media clips, I have listened to a couple of full podcasts. And that's where I ran into the subject, or at least one of the subjects of today's podcast. Erica Biney, through her business, Biney Wellness Building, has been a longtime advertiser on Hawk's podcast. When I first heard the ad read, I admit I was pretty naively taken 
And I, I admitted this as much to Erica when I talked to her. Um, spoiler alert, she will be a part of this podcast. Um, you know, with the basic sales pitch being that she will take a DNA test and use that information to help your swimming performance and specifically help inform how you, you know, fuel up, uh, nutritionally support yourself. And I thought when I heard this the first time, I thought like, what a world we live in. It's 2023. The future is now DNA testing. Um, and you can find out all sorts of cool stuff about yourself that, you know, 10 years ago, you could not. Now, as is a usual um, process for me, sometime after that, I became very skeptical. I started to ask myself, was Biney really legit? And I pretty quickly decided that she wasn't. I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that I would periodically send a post to my friends who I thought had more knowledge than me in nutrition, in the nutrition world and say, this is BS, right? Or even worse than that. But I've also learned an important lesson in 23. That is, when I have that whiplash of a reaction, as I am wont to do a lot of time, it's important to give it some space and actually investigate. So I set off to make this podcast with the aim of proving that I was right. Right? I mean, that's that's a bias that I've talked about a lot of times. Um, we're all looking to confirm what we already believe. And uh, I will admit that was my aim when I started making the podcast that you're about to listen today, that I was going to prove that Erica Biney was a fraudulent actor within the space. So the first two interviews I conducted were with two people that I really trust when it comes to nutrition. And one of them will not be a surprise to listeners and another you're going to get to know for the first time. And I hope you, I hope you're, uh, you're satisfied. Um, I think that she has a lot of really good things to say. So let me introduce them. Uh, the first is Allison Mididieri. Allison's intro of herself was way too humble when you listen to it uh, here in a second. So I will fill in a couple details. Allison is a licensed registered dietitian who works both in a medical practice and as a coach and, and beyond. I mean, she, the, the, the amount of stuff that she does uh, at my former employer, Jersey Wahoos, um, she just, she's got her finger in a lot of different places. Uh, she's also a mom. She's also a seven-time All-American uh, swimming at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Oh, and <laughs> she has worked as a dietitian for USA Swimming on international team events, something she dropped just casually to me after we finished recording. Um, and I, 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 I guess I didn't record that or make her say that into, uh, into the recording piece, but I, I thought I would double back and share some of that as part of her qualifications. Um, the second person that I interviewed was frequent podcast guest, Trevor Gray. If you've been listening to the podcast for a long time, you know, Trevor's one of my friends, you know, that he is somebody that I go to for advice in a lot of situations, especially around nutrition and supplementation. Um, Trevor is probably the person I taught you most about my own stuff. Um, and that is because he's my friend, but also I think that the advice that he gives is advice that he's taking himself. So, you know, a lot of our conversations are around what he is thinking about and 
uh, trying in his own right. And, um, you know, I always think this is kind of the gold standard for advice, not necessarily what uh, you think other people should do, but what would you do uh, in various situations? When I finished these two interviews, I realized I actually needed to talk to Erica Biney herself. I um, was surprised in both conversations to hear the two of them um, talk about what they saw was valid um, within Biney's work. And, um, you know, it made me, it piqued my curiosity a little bit. Um, and I, I just, I said, like, I don't want this to be a, a ruthless hit job. Um, and I would really like to hear her in her own words. So I reached out and everything I'm saying to you so far in the podcast, um, I was really honest with her about how I'd come to the point of reaching out to her. Um, and, uh, to her credit, she was game to come on in that situation. And you'll probably hear when you listen to her, um, on this podcast, how much fun I had talking to her. I legitimately really enjoyed um, the conversation. So here's how the rest of this podcast is going to work. I asked each of the three guests more or less the same questions, and you'll hear their answers. Uh, I'm going to interject from time to time to give you my opinion on their answers, and I promise I will come to some sort of conclusion by the end of this, which won't be the end of this podcast. We're going to spend this one really setting up, you know, who these three people are and um, what kind of knowledge and history and learning do they bring to the table um, in order to have this conversation. My name is Alison Adiri. Uh, I am a registered dietitian. And right now I am uh, primarily working in a gynecology office. It's a specialized gynecology office. Uh, so we see a lot of pediatric under, they classify pediatric as under 26, uh, but under 21 really. Um, so I see a lot of teenagers and I see a lot of teenage athletes. My bread and butter is sports nutrition. Uh, that's what I got into the field for. Um, and it's definitely where I want to take my career in the future. So I do a lot of focus on sports nutrition in general. I also have a private practice um, where I see clients one-on-one -on -one, and that can be a mix of athletes and the general public, um, whether the goal is medical nutrition therapy to, um, which means just treating a disease state or medical condition with a specific type of diet, whether that is required or for survival or um, whether it is, uh, you know, evidence-based diet recommendations based on what we know might help the condition, right? I'm a swim coach, I'm a dryland coach. Unrelated to being an RD, um, but also overlaps quite a bit. To be a dietitian, you have to have an undergraduate degree regardless. It's just some people get their RD through their undergraduate and some get it through their master's program. So 
The route I went was a bachelor's in science in an accredited dietetics program. That was a four-year degree. And then I went the dietetic internship route, which is 1,200 um, hands-on practice hours um, in the clinical setting, in food service setting, and then community nutrition. Um, and are those 1,200 hours, are those supervised? Like somebody's watching yes. you work essentially supervised and giving hours. you- And then there's a board exam. So you have to, once you're done with the hours, you're cleared to take your board exam. And I can't even remember how many questions it is, but it's a hard test and it's really kind of related, similar to your nursing boards or any other medical board exam that you might have to take on any career path. After that, uh, to remain a dietitian, you have to maintain 75 continuing education credits over a five-year period, and every five-year period that renews. Um, if we're talking being a sports dietitian, which I'm actually almost finished with my hours working towards becoming a sports dietitian, additional accreditation. So you do have to be an RD, a board certified RD for at least two years. Um, you have to have 2000 specific practice hours with athletes, working with athletes, either one-on-one -on -one in group setting, and that has to be verified by, um, by somebody else, whether that is a manager or another RD, it has to be proven that you completed those hours um, with athletes. So that's 2000 hours, and then you have to take another board exam. And then after that, okay. you have to maintain 1500 documented practice hours over each five year renewal period. So it's pretty intensive. Give me an idea of like 2000 hours or 1200 hours. I mean, how long does it take to accumulate that? The 1200 supervised practice hours as a dietetic intern, that was 11 months, give or take. Like mine was at a university, so uh, we did have holiday breaks in there, so 10 months. But for the most part, it was Monday through Friday, sometimes weekends. I believe I probably went over 1200 over the course of the program, but give or take 10 months. Why did you pursue that as a track? Why, why was it important for you? There are varying levels of education you can get for advising people, uh, uh, on nutrition. Why in particular did you choose that? Um, so my reason for pursuing the RD credential, um, yeah. was definitely credibility. <laughs> Uh, more than anything, to, uh, to work in a accredited hospital, to work in an accredited healthcare setting, um, registered dietitian, or um, in some cases, certified nutrition specialist, but not everywhere, um, RD is required uh, to work in those settings. Now, um, to accept um, health insurance. I see patients one-on-one -on -one, and many times people want to use their health insurance to pay. Um, I get sure. paid through health insurance and I can't accept health insurance without having an RD credential. Uh, there are certain states that will allow, 
um, certified nutrition specialist to do that as well, but not every single one, which is where the RD came in. So I did quite a bit of research in my last year of high school to try and figure that out, actually. He threw out another term there, certified nutrition specialist. Uh, give, give me an idea of what that means, because from a, like a lay person who's looking from the outside, looking in, I'm very recent to knowing that there's any distinction here. Mm -hmm. Obviously to you, it was an important distinction. Um, mm -hmm. And is there a difference between a certified nutrition specialist and just somebody that says they're a nutritionist? <laughs> the reason why I chose RD over CNS was specifically the job opportunities and um, being able to get paid everywhere if, that I intended to live in the United States. Um, criteria is at this point to become a certified nutrition specialist. I do know that the differences between a CNS and an RD are that um, a CNS is more likely to be more holistic and functionally focused in like integrative medicine than an RD is. Both, I will say, are follow evidence-based nutrition practice. This is not me saying, oh, those certified nutrition specialists, they're not, they're not qualified. They are definitely qualified to give nutrition advice. Yeah. Um, it's just they are not quite as recognized in the healthcare setting as RDs are. Um, there are a lot of RDs out there that don't want certified nutrition specialists to be allowed um, in healthcare settings. And right. I mean, I don't really personally, if you do your due diligence and you do your education and, and you're providing evidence-based practice, I don't really care. That's a whole other conversation. Now, the difference between nutritionist and someone like an RD, someone that is a nutritionist, we have an RD that is technically a nutritionist, but a nutritionist is not always an RD. On the other hand, you can have somebody who read a textbook took an online weekend course and therefore can call themselves a nutritionist. Basically, anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. It's you just kind of have to do your digging and your research in terms of how did you get to the point where you call yourself a nutritionist? Yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, but I think about this distinction all the time. My education, I have a master's in applied positive psychology. And sometimes I think I'm overly pedantic about pointing out to people as I will tell them, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not mm -hmm. qualified to treat mental health issues. I'm not able to work in a medical setting. As you're saying, I do have an education that is relevant to talking to people about, you know, what they're thinking about, especially as it relates to um, sports. But I do think it's important. Uh, and, and I think one of the reasons why I'm having this conversation is um, because I can see both sides of it. And I think I hear that in what you're saying. You know, it's um, the you, you probably know of some people who have the education, too, who you're thinking like, I don't know if I would trust that person. It's not a guarantee. But on yeah. the other hand, you know, I think it's it is you you want to be able to do some research and have some idea of what people 
what the what what kind of knowledge they're bringing to the table and what kind of background they have to be dispensing the advice that they're dispensing. Absolutely. So, if you could give us maybe an overview of what your process is, let's say you have somebody that comes into um, uh, a medical practice that you evaluate, you have somebody that comes to you in a private setting, like what would be just maybe a couple scenarios that people would come in to see you for? And then um, what, what kind of like diagnostics would you use to evaluate them and, and sort of get started on a process? Okay. So, um, well, I'm always looking at medical history first, right? Um, Those long forms that you have to fill out when you go into a doctor's office. That's like, have you ever had a surgery? Have you ever had asthma? Have you ever had a heart problem, et cetera? Absolutely. I'm looking at those things first and I'm determining if there are nutrition um, approaches to those conditions. And usually there is, Um, for example, I mean, the most basic one is right. Heart disease, heart attacks, or diabetes, metabolic conditions that are very obviously like people know that they are, they can be treated with nutrition approaches. So I'm always looking for those things, especially if somebody comes in for something unrelated to those conditions. So say someone comes in for their acid reflux, but they have diabetes at the same time. That means I have to look at both and I have to treat both um, in an, in an impactful way. Right. I'm not only looking at medical history. I'm looking at medications. I'm looking at allergies, whether that be food and or environmental digestive health, how often someone poops, um, how often, um, are they, do they get gassy? Do they get bloated, um, with certain types of foods or just, does it seem random? Um, I'm working in a gynecology office, so I'm looking at the menstrual cycle often. I mean, most of the girls I see have irregular menstrual cycles for some reason, Uh, whether that be um, relative energy deficiency in sport, which leads to the sport side, which means you are over-exercising and under-eating, and that leads to a bunch of different um, symptoms, um, possibly disease conditions, Um, or on the other end, things like metabolic conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome or endometriosis or something of that nature. So, um, the menstrual cycle is a huge vital sign for me now that I have been working in a gynecology practice. Um, you know, and then I'm also looking at diet history, relationship with food, Um, how food was talked about in your household, how food is currently talked about in your household. If you have history of eating disorder, I try and pick up on disordered eating patterns. Um, That's a huge part of my screening actually now, especially in the gynecology office. Um, I'm looking at lab work, any lab work that has been done, or if I need lab work um, to be done, I suggest it's done. Um, I'm looking at that's like blood, blood analysis, urine analysis. When you say lab work. Okay. Yep. Yep. So the heavy hitters I'm looking at are, um, a lipid panel, the comprehensive metabolic panel that like looks at your blood glucose and all like your sodium levels and things like that. 
um, your complete blood count that tells me varying levels of anemia potentially, um, iron, vitamin D. One I've been looking at a lot recently is insulin that I didn't always look at in the past. Um, that's, you know, your level of um, insulin resistance at your ability to digest and absorb uh, glucose, essentially. Um, and then I'm looking at sleep patterns, level of exercise. Have you had abnormal weight gain or loss in the past six months to a year? And that's like unintentional, right? Um, if you were attempting to lose weight and right. it was excessive, I might that might be a red flag to me. But if you weren't attempting to lose weight and you lost weight anyway, that's a huge red flag. Um, and then daily habits and routines. So it's pretty comprehensive. I try to limit it to an hour. People also want some sort of, you know, tangible action step when they leave that first appointment. And one of the things specifically that I, that I didn't hear in there that I wanted to ask you about, um, DNA testing, you know, I think it's, uh, in my lifetime, uh, these sort of at home, uh, DNA tests have become a thing, right? Uh, what, if any applicability to what you do, do you see in those? So this is an interesting one because I technically do have the ability because I, I am registered with a, um, genetic testing company as a provider. I technically have the ability to have a, a, if I see a patient in front of me that, you know, I'm wondering if there is some genetic component to their situation, maybe I might suggest it. I'll tell you the number of times I have suggested it and followed through with it is one. Um, one time out of what we're talking, maybe hundreds of people, thousands of people, okay. thousands. Oh God. I, I don't know. I don't know if I had the ability to see thousands at this point, but it sure feels like it. Definitely hundreds. <laughs> um, okay. But uh, the reason why I'm not and and not doing it more consistently is because it gives me information, but not necessarily a diagnostic, it's not a diagnostic tool. So I think a lot of times the DNA testing can be a great piece of information, but at the same time, we tend to take things like that as black and white. And my fear with using them is always that somebody will come to me and see that they have the, what, whatever the one with caffeine is. <laughs> right. I can never have caffeine. Um, so, which is not totally true, right? There's a lot of nuance to everything. And this is, this goes with every type of blood test or diagnostic test that you might do. Right. So there's a level of, okay, we have this gene pop up and what does it tell us about what might be going on? not what 
is going on. So do I think it could be useful? Yes, I do. Um, And do I think that there's a lot of great research behind it? And may I use it in the future more consistently? Maybe, actually, probably. I think in the future, I will probably more consistently use it. But right now, the results that are being spit out from these tests is pretty black and white. Like, this is the gene mutation that you might have. And this is what you should do about it. You should cut blank from your diet or you should... And most of the time, it's remove this from your diet completely, which I don't agree with unless it's a matter of like like celiac disease, like 100%, you should remove gluten from your diet. Right. What I just heard you say is you don't really want to make decisions like especially drastic decisions to um, remove something entirely from your diet or put something into a diet uh, based on that. In your mind, what's the downside to somebody looking, they, they get this genetic test and, you know, they feel again, very definitive black or white about it. And they take an action like that. What's, what's the downside? Okay. So like the example I use caffeine is probably not the best one because right. You'd be okay. without downsides caffeine. To keeping caffeine out of your diet. Um, yeah. I'm not even going to pull out any specific gene marker here. Right. I'm just going to talk about when we eliminate a food group or a specific food in general. Um, because the danger in that is you, well, on, on surface level to me, it's we run the risk of a nutrient deficiency, especially if it's a full food group, right? Uh, some people have, I mean, say, say I had a real hunch that dairy was an issue for somebody, which is actually really common. Um, and I'm telling people to watch their dairy intake often. Um, the downsides of that might be if they're not eating dark leafy greens or beans or nuts and seeds, and they're not replacing that dairy with something, we're looking at a decrease in calcium. We're looking at a decrease in magnesium. We're looking at a decrease in possibly vitamin D absorption, right? Um, because calcium and vitamin D are absorbed together. Uh, so uh, we're looking at like, how do we replace the nutrients coming out of your diet with something else? And I don't really love the idea of replacing that with a supplement all the time. This is like another nuanced thing where sometimes people need supplements and sometimes they don't. It's all a very personalized thing. So um, there's one thing, but then there's, if we go a little deeper, the restriction of foods. I'm very, very hyper aware just because of the number of eating disorders I've seen, the impact of restricting food when it may or may not be totally necessary. Um, It can be really damaging. And um, there's a higher risk of eating disorder than there is 
of like I'm I have this on my mind because there's a higher risk of eating disorder from restricting that candy and demonizing that candy and and putting it on this pedestal of something that you can't have and something that your kids end up sneaking binging and and going down that rabbit hole than there is of your kid developing diabetes so it's to me i don't like to send people down that potential spiral if i don't unless i know for sure that they can handle it one of the reasons i asked you to come on this podcast is um i've been following the content of Erica Biney. Um, among other things, she touts to people that um, they should get a DNA test through her and that she will make recommendations to them based off that DNA test, including, uh, as far as I can tell, supplementation. Um, she had a video where she said uh, she used DNA testing to tell somebody that they were lactose intolerant. Um, she uses DNA testing to tell people like what kind of carbohydrates they should be eating or when they should be eating it. I mean, what do you think of claims like that as they relate to DNA testing? Uh, I'm actually a little confused about is the lactose intolerance because that's a breath test. To diagnose lactose intolerance, that's a breath you, test. You don't need a, a few hundred dollar DNA test? Like, uh, how um, much does the breath test cost for... Um... I think if you go to your gastroenterologist, it's probably covered by insurance. Yeah. I would hope anyway. Um, that I, I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, anytime you see a diag like a diagnosis from a DNA test. One, we're not allowed to diagnose anything as an RD. You can make nutrition diagnoses, which is okay. typically, um, I'll give you an example, inadequate energy intake related to, um, you know, food, uh, food aversion or diet culture practices or diet restriction practices, um, evidence by blank. You have to give a reason. We are not as RDs. And I would say also anybody outside of a doctor allowed to diagnose conditions. What I'm hearing in this is you are actually being very careful in the way you're answering a lot of the questions and you're trying to like make sure you get it right. And I, I, I get the sense when I watch that other content, like it's infinitely more satisfying for somebody to come on an Instagram video and be like, you know what's wrong with you? You're, you're eating carbs at the wrong time. And if you do this, like this, this will fix everything. Well, I have the answers that are going to get things going for you. And sometimes the way you're talking about this, like, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to, we're going to go move slowly. I'm going to look at the whole picture. There's so many factors that could be involved. You have to understand the whole system. It's so much less satisfying to hear, right? You say like people want to walk out of the office with, Hey, give me my meal plan that if I follow just everything will be okay in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it can be really, 
gosh, it is definitely, it's definitely sexier to get, <laughs> to get, oh, this is my, this is my genetic makeup and this is how I should eat yeah. um, based on that. And, and I will say, I think the science is getting there. I think, mm. I think we are moving down that path where we can do stuff like that. I. All right, next up, here's Trevor Gray. Trevor introduces himself off the top, so I won't remind you who he is. Uh, enjoy my conversation with him. My name is Trevor Gray. I have a master's in integrative human physiology, and I'm a professor of nutrition and anatomy and physiology at Tacoma Community College. And I was fortunate that I had the opportunity to go back to school at a later age, and that took me five plus years to um, gain the, yeah, I suppose, not authoritative knowledge, but gain the knowledge necessary to make judgments on these things and make educated comments. It wasn't a weekend or even few week certification yeah. in, in nutrition. I would say I'm constantly not only revisiting what I learned, like I'm rereading my physiology textbook actually, I am listening to the narratives out there, both positive and potentially negative, so that I am ready for these questions in the classroom. So like, hey, what 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 do you think about this diet or that diet or that test and this test? And um, I think it's super pertinent that every instructor remain abreast of the constant influx of information that's coming out. Um, and it's <laughs> it is a lot. It's essential that we keep, um, um, yeah, keep abreast of, of everything that's coming out. When you think about your own level of expertise, where do you put yourself on the spectrum from just any old regular person off the street and somebody who's, who's worked to get an RD? I actually don't tell anyone what to eat. Uh, only a registered dietitian is able to do that. Said you, or you need to eat this. I make recommendations or say you should consider this, but uh, I unless you have those RD and I suppose PhD letters behind your name, I don't. I don't feel comfortable giving nutrition advice beyond my four pillars of how to eat, which is color, variety, moderation, and enjoy your food. Beyond that, uh, I, I need some data first. Uh, in order to um, help you out with some nutrition advice that you should consider. So who who are you giving advice to? Like, for instance, we're friends, right? Uh, yeah. Sometimes I say like, hey, what do you think about this thing I'm doing? So what are the contexts where you uh, tell people what your opinion is in terms of nutrition? I need data and I am not... Uh, well-versed in pathology, so blood work. Um, while I have looked at some blood work, um, I'm not an expert in that at all. Um, I'm not a medical doctor. The only thing I feel comfortable with is if they were to do a seven-day diet analysis uh, using any particular app. There is one that I like, but uh, and even then, that's just guessing. You and I talk about all the time, we are in the dark ages of coaching and nutrition and genetics and biology um we still we are we're putting to the pieces of the puzzle together but we're still really in the dark ages so unless i have some sort of 
data set of your diet analysis for the last seven days, I, I won't give any nutrition advice that, uh, beyond huh. people who are good friends. You mentioned basically food journaling there as the data that you will look at. Correct. Yeah. And on, on some sort of online app. And even then, um, those are just guessing. For example, um, you take the orange and we have an average amount of vitamin C in any particular orange. But any orange that you eat could have more or less than that average. And right. so we are we're totally guessing even with these apps on what you're actually intaking. And we just get as close as we can. But it is some data. And so I will look at these data sets and say, oh, hey, we need to change around. You should change it, consider changing around your macronutrient distribution. Or look, you're low in some micronutrients. Please, you should increase the foods that have those micronutrients. That's that's the extent of what I'm comfortable with. What do you think about DNA testing? What's your opinion? Well, we're in the dark ages. So there's three types of genetic tests. Really quickly, yep. molecular test, a cytogenic test, and a biochemical test. And let's say anyone is using a molecular test, which is looking at the genetic sequence of variants you may or may not have. All right? So okay. that's first. And all three of these tests have positives and, and negatives to them. Okay. Are these are all three things you can get, like yeah. order out of your home DNA testing? Yeah, yeah. And there are different okay. costs to these. But yeah, molecular, cytogenic, and biochemical tests, you can okay. order these now. Okay. Uh, number one, these tests are testing 0.1% of your genetic sequence. We're not getting an entire genomic test for any particular human. We can now. I don't think uh, many companies are doing this, but you can for under $1,000 now, which is actually incredible. But all these take-home tests are throwing darts at the dartboard for any particular sequence to see if you have a positive or negative result. Okay, what does it mean to be positive for a particular variant? So you get your test back and it says you have a genetic variant for lack of vitamin C absorption. Hmm. It doesn't mean that you have that because um, it depends heavily on two things. Penetrance and expressivity. Penet penetrance refers to people with a particular genetic variant who exhibit the symptoms of the genetic disorder. And then the expressivity refers to the range of signs of symptoms that can occur. Okay, you take a genetic test and it says uh, you are not absorbing very much vitamin C. Is that really the case? Is the penetrance really showing this? And if it is, how much of vitamin C are you not absorbing? Is it only 10%? Then you probably won't need to take extra vitamin C, for example. Okay. And on top of all that, a simple blood work will tell you if you're low in vitamin C. And so just the, the normal means, so the normal means of testing that we currently have are sufficient for making small adjustments to our, our nutrition. Okay, let's say you have a negative result and you don't have any particular variant or expression of a genetic mutation. Labs can't test for every possible disease-causing variant in every gene. And so right now, there's no meaningful way to, uh, to do a genetic test 
and impute that dietary wisdom upon that person. So, so basically what you're saying is we lack the sophistication uh, largely in in these relatively inexpensive, you know, couple hundred dollar at home DNA tests to both test more than one tenth of one uh, percent of a DNA sequence, and then actually within that test for all the potential variants um, that people could have. Correct. Yeah, and then there's so many other complicating factors to it. Uh, just that. The- it doesn't make much sense when we have blood markers. It doesn't make much sense to do genetic testing, in my opinion, in my opinion. Now, will it become a viable solution in the future to where we can make meaningful dietary changes according to genetics? Absolutely. But we're probably 10 years away from that, at least. One of the angles that you come at this from is um, you're somebody who has, uh, I would say, a high degree of investment in his own health in diagnostics on himself. Um, would you, have you tried DNA testing, genetic testing? So you've not tried it at all. Um, and, and why not? For the reasons I just purported is that yeah. um, in order to, uh, is there a potential to make to for harm? So let's say I have a positive. Yeah, please say, say what, say what potential harm you see. <laughs> if any, I mean, it's probably low, but is there a potential for harm? And, and yeah, there is. You could take too much of a supplement possibly, which is I'm assuming that's the easiest way to um, give advice is you have this genetic variant, take this supplement. I think that's really easy to do. But without follow-up tests of blood work, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. And in addition, when I give my DNA sequence to a company, who owns that? I'm really skeptical of that. And maybe that's you know, conspiracy theorish, uh, uh, you know, um, delving into that realm, but I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that yet. I, I, I need some more privacy assurances. Finally, we get to Erica Biney and uh, this one goes the longest. We got into quite a conversation about her background and how she got to the position that she's in now. I'm Erica Biney, and I now work as a sports nutrition consultant. I own our own company. I say ours because I have some incredible people that work for us. I'm the owner, but you know we, we kind of all take that ownership. Um, called Biney Wellness Building. We specifically work with swimmers, their parents, their coaches their neighbor's uncle's sister-in-law, right? It, it kind of trends throughout the swimming community. Now, we also work with people that aren't swimmers. I have a couple of athletes right now that are baseball players, football, basketball, and so on. But we help them understand their nutrition side and help them understand specific to swimming, what are your nutritional needs? And we take it a bit of a deep dive deeper and we look at their genetic components that are making up what comes on inside of them to help them even more nail down supplement, recovery, food, fueling, pre-workout, really help them put together a plan of how to fuel themselves properly for them, right? Because you and I are different. Why should we do the same thing? Everybody's different. But I did start coaching in 2004. Five, I guess essentially started as a GA like many people out there doing the grunt work getting their tuition for grad school paid for and I worked at Ball State University there in the MAC 
the men and women as a as a GA, but in the MAC, if you're a GA, you are the full blown assistant coach, and you also go to school full time. So you're kind of like running two full time jobs. Uh, yep. From there, I went to the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee as an assistant. I spent two years there with the men and the women, and then I became the head coach at age 26 of the men's and women's team there. So I was pretty young, and I was the youngest head coach in the country at that time, and one of four women actually coaching a Division One men's team. Um, and so we won a championship my second year as a head coach at the men's team. Uh, there, to our knowledge, there was very few, if any, women that have won a Division One conference championship as a, a head coach, as a female of a, of a men's team. So we were doing really great. The women were, you know, close second. I think every year I was the head coach there. So they were on a great path, recruited this really great kid out of a farm town in Wisconsin called Emily McClellan. And that name probably rings a bell with you. Absolutely. I wanted to highlight that piece. Yeah. I wanted to get there. Recruited Emily. I didn't get to coach Emily very long because I did move on and went to the University of Maryland. Stay, I'm still in touch with Emily. Wonderful family. Awesome girl. But she ended up going 57 in the 100 breast, you know, when 57 was fast and it's still super fast. But um, back then, and I think she went, was that 11 or 12, somewhere in there. She went 5,700 breast, was second, I believe, at NC2A's. Like just amazing career. Just a cool kid. But recruited her, got to you know, meet her and, and coach her a little bit, which was kind of fun, but totally the credit to her swimming goes to Kyle, who's the head coach there. He did everything with her and her development, but I get to say I recruited her, which was awesome and saw the talent. Like that's the thing. You saw the talent. No one else recruited her. Um, she was on people's campuses and they didn't even pay attention to her. I mean, she was a good swimmer too. It wasn't like she was a bad swimmer, but she was, a, yeah. that was a fun one. People I mean, you, what, 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 just to get the, my listeners context, I mean, some of what you're talking about there, Emily McClellan is a swimmer who was competing at the top of the NCAA level. She was an international competitor for the United States. Just like for anybody who pays attention, think about how often that happens at a mid-major school. It's maybe once every five to 10 years. Like I said, went on to the University of Maryland, spent a year there as the assistant with the men and women just before they dropped their programs. That's where we crossed over, Erica. That is was where that we have been on the pool deck together. I was an assistant coach at Georgia Tech. We were at an that's ACC championship together. That, that's where we know each other from. Yep. Here okay. we go. <laughs> um, and then I went to Purdue and spent the next basically seven and a half, eight years as the women's assistant at Purdue. Um, and then I, in 2018, decided to retire from coaching and started my own thing. And here we are. And I'm, I'm very curious about your at Purdue and I, like I heard you on another podcast talk about like I started to get involved in like meal planning, like what what people were doing around like talk about like where where did the seed get planted? Uh, was it during that time in Purdue? And then when did you just go like no more swim coaching? I'm just going to do this. Yeah, that's it's a a lot of that's a that's a lot. Yeah, it's hard it's hard to really <laughs> linear path on that. I wish I had that there was, but there was no linear path in that trend that thought or any of that. So I guess the seed really it kind of started with my own health journey in a way that um, you know I got to Maryland. All of a sudden I was trying to, I totally remember this clear as day. I was trying to pack to go to NCAAs and like, I don't like how these clothes fit me anymore. What's happened to me, right? Like, and I probably had gained like 10 pounds and I'm six, basically six feet. And so it's not really a big difference. But for the first right. time in my life, 
I had thought, oh my gosh, I don't like how I feel. And so like, what do I do? We never were taught this in school. We weren't taught about nutrition. You, you know, buy slim fast or what, you don't know what to do. So I just started tracking my own calories. I started learning like, wow, I'm eating X amount of grams of sugar a day. And this says I'm supposed to eat 50. What? Like I thought I ate pretty well. So that's like really where the whole seed sort of started in my own nutrition interest. And then it just kept going down the rabbit hole. I just kept learning and then, um, I had success with my own health journey on that side of, in that part of my life. And, you know, I had gotten to a place where I was like, you know, lost that little extra 10 pounds. I didn't feel good about, but no one else would have ever noticed it. But I didn't like that being an athlete. You're so conscious about your own body. And then people started asking me questions about food. Like, well, what should I do here? But be because even in the major schools, right? Um, to my knowledge, even Texas, Virginia, Cal, like all these guys, they don't have a sports dietitian or nutritionist at the pool there to answer questions every single day when athletes have them. So who do they go to? The person they think that knows the most about what they wanna know about. So they would ask me questions. If I didn't know the answer, I'd try to go find it. And we had a really great, I think it was a parent of an athlete at Maryland come in and talk and just give, just was really, really good about helping people understand fueling for swimming. I'm like, this is so cool. I'm so interested in this. And that just really kick-started it. Um, and then as I got to Purdue, the, the people knew I knew something about food. But again, you, I, as an assistant coach, even though we had a director of ops, even though we had an assistant on the men's side, <laughs> I ended up being the person that planned all of our meals on the road, where we were gonna stop, what our catering included. You know, if we needed a breakfast early in the morning and we had a three o'clock meet, that's a hard gap. So I had to figure out what we were gonna put there. Were we gonna hit the bagel shop in Evanston and get everyone bagel sandwiches? We didn't need a full meal, but we needed something, right? So I had to, to step into that role. And I had to educate myself. I had to utilize our resources we had on campus. And I use our sports dietitian to help a lot of sports. They have a lot of athletes. They can't be the everything and just have an office at the pool ready for anybody to stop in. So that's sort of where it started. And it, I would say it really got accelerated um, towards the end of my coaching career where I went through a bit of a health journey again myself. And I actually, long story short, thought I had MS because I had all the mm. symptoms. I have all, I check all the boxes. I was having major depression, horrible body pain, just, I'm like, and then people were saying, you know, you just came off of a, having a baby a year ago. You're probably just kind of in that space, like, but something's not right. I got prescribed sleep meds, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, and sent me to a neurologist. I did a brain MRI. And luckily by like the fifth doctor's appointment, the neurologist said, did anyone ever check your iron? It's like, I don't know. Test, <laughs> I don't know. Do you tell me? It's like, well, let's just check it, okay? And sure enough, my ferritin level, which USA Swimming says, if you're not at a 35 or above, like you can't do what you're supposed to do as an athlete. I was a nine. And I was mm. just, and two to three weeks on iron, I was like a whole new person. So that was like, just very interested me in what micronutrients and vitamins and knowing about your own body can do for you and just being a proactive advocate on your own health and saying, no, this isn't, I'm not depressed. I don't have sleep problems. Something else is causing this and just right. 
that's kind of what accelerated that. And in 2018, I had the ability to walk away from coaching because I wanted to be a more involved parent. I wanted to spend more time with our kids and you get that. I mean, you live the coaching life, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. not a whole lot of extra, extra time. And I said, I can start this started on the side and still spend time with my kids and I can be present on the weekends. I can be present and I can do what I want to do. Not what someone else is telling me I have to do. You know, I'm listening to you. Like you say, like I got something going on. I started tracking my own diet. Right. And, you know, asking myself hard questions about how I was actually fueling myself. Um, I had this other experience where, you know, um, the, the level of a, a, a mineral like in my body, you know, really made it a difference in, in my overall, um, health. And I, I hear a little bit about, you know, you getting curious about this and like wanting to know more and seeing the, the impact that it can make. Um, one of the conversations that we're going to have, right, is about different paths that you could take if you're curious about this. And you know that I interviewed um, a woman who I've worked with at Jersey Wahoos, who's a registered dietitian. In all of that, why did you choose, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this piece of it, but it seems like you chose more informal pathways than like a formal pathway. You know, like I don't, I don't see that you, you know, went and got a degree somewhere in nutrition or um, tried to become a dietitian or any of those things. Like you, you made a conscious choice there. And I guess why? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's actually, that's a very good question. So part of it was one, I, I mean, truly just didn't want to go to school for six years again. Right. I didn't felt like I had the time. I hear that. I hear that. Preach. Get a whole another degree. Now I'm not a registered dietitian. I don't pretend to be one. I don't. You know, those guys have gone to school for five, six years plus, right? Yeah. And they've learned different uh, types of of strategies and and very similar strategies. I wanted to take a more holistic approach to nutrition as well. Not that RDS don't have that. Some do. Some don't. But I wanted to go a different path. So I went through the certification process as a sports nutritionist, as a holistic practitioner, as a personal trainer. Um, what else did I have? Uh, I can't remember. There's something else I had. And then go through the board certification process as an, a, a practitioner of the drugless practitioner program. So get board certified there. So I, I knew that certifications and education are important, right? You just, anybody okay. can actually call themselves a nutritionist. You could call yourself a nutritionist. It doesn't mean you have any yeah. education. And the same thing. I mean, someone could look at our credentials and say, oh, you're not an RD. You didn't go to school for this. Um, you don't have any of that behind you. And that they're absolutely, they're absolutely right. But what we did do is shy of going to school for five or six years is educate ourselves and certify ourselves with what we felt was appropriate for the work we wanted to do. Now, there's limitations to what we can do because we're not RDs. We do have a nurse practitioner on our staff. Um, we have some really cool stuff coming up for 2024, hopefully, that's actually going to partner us up with some companies with some physicians and would be a really neat partnership if it um, you know, all pans out the way we believe it's going to. But I just wanted to go a different route. 
and I, I just truly didn't want to go back to school for six years, quite honestly. And I believe there's so much you can learn by reading journals of medicine, reading these pieces and being educating yourself and also holding certifications. Hopefully that answers your question a little bit there. Good question. So our, the method we use is uh, we do a cheek swab for collection sample. So we use a okay. sterile cheek swab. It's not like something we make in our basement. Okay, it's just like legit sterile, like medical supplies. Um, and molecular Labs processes all the samples. So if you look up Molecular Labs, there's CLIA certified. They're HIPAA compliant. We stay HIPAA compliant. You know, everything is safe. You can see 23andMe just had this big data breach, right? Because they store mm -hmm. everybody's information and that millions of people's data was, you know, stolen. That can't happen in a HIPAA compliant setting because you can't store people's data in the database. So 23andMe tells you, and so does the Ancestry, those are fun tests to take. You're gonna learn cool stuff about yeah. yourself. But they tell you, we're gonna sell your stuff, we're gonna sell your information, we're gonna store your genetics in a database, right? So I was very, it, yeah, if you don't know about the 23andMe data breach, go Google it. You'll find it. And if you did, okay. ever did that test, be worried about your, your information if you have those concerns. So we, with the HIPAA piece, is super important. As you know, we've worked with some really high-level people. They've given us permission to share. Some of them were ambassadors for our program, Lydia Jacoby, um, and one in particular, Patrick Callan was Olympian as well. So we've worked with some people that really have concerns over some news outlet obtaining their information and sharing it all over their news outlets like right they have that right. concern and just equally as concerning you have a parent concerned about their nine-year-old's data being stored or used or used against them in insurance purposes or whatever that is so privacy right. is super important to us we wanted that and when we are looking for a um, a, 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 a testing procedure that was going to stay in compliant with that um, so we, they go through the sample, it's just a cheek swab. So you swab your cheek and then it goes to the lab, they process it. It's so HIPAA compliant that we don't even get the results. So if somebody truly just wants to see their own results and not have us walk them through the, the process of explaining, dissecting, helping guide them on it, they honestly wouldn't have to. Now everybody has, except for one person, because they want us to help that's the purpose. They want yeah. us to help them understand and how to implement these changes and this information. So we we definitely want to make sure we're keep, keeping people feeling comfortable that their information is going to be safe, that what they say with us is very private, unless they give us permission to share with their swim coach. Say, yeah, you can talk to my swim coach about my athlete genes so they can understand my muscle fibers and how that's affecting some things, right? But we're very concerned on that. And rightfully so, I think everyone should be concerned about their data being shared um, anywhere. That's, that's important. Um, and so, so one of the questions, like when I hear you describe your own, your own life, right? If we go back to the example of ferritin, right? That was something like you had blood work done. That's mm -hmm. how you determined um, why, like, why go to DNA testing? Because when I talk to Trevor and when I talk to Allison, both of them are like DNA testing, it's 10 years away. I wouldn't use it for anything right now. So I guess one of the questions, and I told you this, um, ahead of time, I'm really curious to hear your answer is what do you like, what do you know that they don't know 
or like, how do you come at this and say like, the time is now, it's not 10 years from now, we can do something with this right away. Right. And everyone's got to have their own opinions and I respect that everyone has their own knowledge and their own opinions and their own experiences, but I would say we're using it right now. And if you, Chris, go to your physician or your nurse practitioner or anybody in a medical office and say, I'm depressed, I want to be on an antidepressant and I want the gene site test. Many people don't even know about it, right? So you right. can walk into your doc and you can get a genetic test that they're using and they actually test one of the same or a couple of the same genes that we test and what we do. And so what that gene site test does, and I can give you this incredible story about this from one of our clients, it takes a cheek swab, just like we sample, same thing, goes to a lab. And what comes back is if you want to be on an antidepressant, anti-anxiety, psychotropic drug, what happens then is it tells you a green light category. These drugs will not interact with your genetic profile or very, very, very minimal interactions. Yellow category, you're going to have some interactions here. And these use with caution. Red category, do not use. These are ones your body cannot metabolize or process and you're going to have major side effects. So genetic testing is being done in your doctor's office right now. In Europe, it's one of the first defenses when somebody is dealing with depression, anxiety. In the States, one of our first defenses is, let's try Effexor. <laughs> let's try Fluoxetine. I was on Effexor once, yeah. That's a piece <laughs> to come off of. You don't want to come oh, off of that. The so zaps, a, yeah, the zaps are real. <laughs> but if you did a gene site and they found, you know what, Chris, if you ever want to come off of that, you're really going to struggle because of your genetic makeup. So it, it removes the process of, oh, yeah, I tried sertraline didn't work. Yeah. Now let's come off of that for a couple weeks. Then you're not going to feel good. And we're going to start this new med and you're not going to feel good for two weeks. So we'll see how that goes. Right? So it takes out that elimination process or that trial and error. We had a client do it. She's been on mult. She's a high level professional triathlete. Just went to Kona. Her coach says she overperformed for her training because her training hours were cut. She went and did a gene site. I told her about it. I said, I can't do this for you, but you know, in our, in our space, our NP on staff will do them. Um, you know, you can go to your doc and just ask for it. She went to her psychiatrist, did it. I think she paid two or 300 bucks for it. It's a $6,000 test to pay two or 300 bucks out of pocket for it. Hey, this is Chris checking in actually almost done putting this entire podcast together, but I, I had one more thing I wanted to add and it. It's in regards to the discussion that we just had it's, it's I'm going to say something specific about as it relates to genetic testing and uh, antidepressants. And then I'm going to talk about more broadly uh, some of what I was thinking when I did my research on this. I was listening to this answer and again, like something went off in my mind that um, just made me think like that doesn't sound quite right. I mean, I, I lived in Denmark. Um, I lived in a socialized uh, medical system. The idea of uh, psychiatrists in that context or general practitioners uh, in that context ordering uh, expensive diagnostic testing to figure out what kind of antidepressants would work for you and wouldn't um, just seemed really foreign to me. And I also realized that um, in in you know, getting some answers to what was going on, 
Um, I have a relative with relevant experience. That is my dad, who's a psychiatrist. So I called my dad up and said, like, Dad, what's the deal with this genetic testing as it relates to um, antidepressants? Because um, you're a medical doctor that prescribes antidepressants to people. Um, so the following is, is, a, is my reporting of what my dad said to me in that conversation. And you can take it in the context of this is just one psychiatrist uh, reporting back. Um, but he was overall fairly pessimistic about the potential of genetic testing. Um, you know, he's, he's been a practicing psychiatrist for almost 50 years. And um, he said over that time, there have been cycles where people have, you know, tried to use some diagnostics to inform psychiatric medicine. Um, he referenced that uh, sometime in the 80s or 90s, um, there was purportedly testing that has since been totally discredited um, that, you know, was meant to determine whether uh, your depression was, you know, hereditary, uh, hereditarily caused or environmentally caused, you know, like, was it, was it just, you know, who you were or was it the circumstances that you were in? And, uh, he sees this very much like that, like they're, they're extrapolating a lot from some subjects that they don't really know about. And maybe it's going to pan out, um, and, uh, be something that is really useful but at this point, um, in his opinion, it was not something that he had ever uh, felt like was necessary to use or helpful to use um, in any practicing sense. And I guess the broader conversation I want to have as it relates to this is, as I said uh, in the intro of everything that I was doing here, I had a great time talking to Erica Biney. Like I, um, if she were... Uh, you know, standing poolside at a meet, I think I could talk to her for hours. Um, and I found the, ins the answers to a lot of questions that she gave super interesting and very compelling and made me really, really curious. Um, and so I want to recognize that. But I also want to recognize that, um, you know, throughout this conversation, and I, I will reference it by the end, I mean, I'm not particularly... Uh, in a position to fact check a lot of what she's saying, really to push back necessarily on specific points. And, you know, this was just happened to be one situation where I was able to do that. And that's why I want to include it. And I, I guess I want to include it for you as an audience, because I don't think that um, you should take necessarily everything she says in this podcast at face value. Um, it, it, I may be cheating ahead to my conclusion at the end here a bit, but, um, you know, I would be very careful and very well informed if I was going to uh, follow on some of the advice that I was getting from Erica. For part one, check back for part two, where I dig in a little bit with everybody and ask them more about where they find the limits for their expertise and ultimately bring this to a conclusion, give you my analysis on how I think about all this. See you guys soon.